WBZ original. Yeah, Maybe right. like a bear skin rug over there would be. Yes, that's very classy. It's yeah. true. It's true. Maybe that we need to, you know, a little brutalist on the on the <laughs> That's right. I know what you like, John. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody. We are in a brand new WBZ podcast yeah. studio for this episode of Austin's number one podcast, yeah. Studio BZ. What do you think, guys? Tons of soundproofing in here, and as I was saying. Now no one else in the newsroom can hear our screams. Yeah. It's true. We're safe in so, here. It's a little scary. It's a little scary. Yeah. We're yeah, a little cut off. No, but it's beautiful. We have, we're now oh, in beautiful. the newsroom. We used to be upstairs at WBZ. Mm-hmm. It was a little tougher to interact with people in the newsroom while you're doing the podcast. Now we could just run out and grab someone if we want to get an interview. Pull them in. We can get people. No one is safe. And if it gets no boring safe. doing the podcast, there's this beautiful bowling alley. We can <laughs> pull, pull a couple We've strings. We've got a couch, yeah. a little seating area. This mm-hmm. is going to be great. So yeah. this is episode nine of season three. And welcome, everybody. I'm Paula Evans. I'm Leah Martin of Austin's number one podcast. We have to keep drilling that home. That's an important thing to to point out. That is awesome. And I'm John Keller. And on the show this week, uh, we sat down to talk with Senator Ed Markey uh, and asked him about bipartisanship. Uh, Despite the often partisan rhetoric you'll see from Markey when he's on CNN or what have you, uh, he actually has a reputation as one of the people in the Senate who works well and has a lot of friends mm. on the other side of the aisle. Is that uh, a dying breed? We'll talk with the senator about that and much more. And Spamilton comes to Boston. The parody of the Broadway smash hit is here uh, being presented by the Huntington Theatre Company. And we talked to one of the two local co-creators, Fred Barton. And then Representative Lori Trahan of the 3rd Congressional District is in on what's being done to help Merrimack Valley, uh, the Merrimack Valley, recover from the gas explosions back in September and her fight as well against the opioid crisis. It's amazing how a story like that just keeps Mm. lingering on with the repercussions from it and the damage. All these months later. It's going to be a long, long time time before things are back to normal. Senator Ed Markey has been in Congress, beginning in the House of Representatives, for over 40 years, and yet he's the junior senator from Massachusetts. Uh, I'm sure Ed doesn't mind being called junior, but uh, in any case, he's seen a lot. He came in with the a wave of post-Watergate reformers elected to the House in 1976, uh, was elected to the Senate in a special election to fill out the term uh, uh, after John Kerry uh, stepped down to become Secretary of State, won election in his own right in 2014, and is up for re-election next year. Uh, What does he make of the current situation in Washington? How is he navigating this period of maximum polarization? And uh, what does he expect uh, some of the issues will be as he stands for re-election next year? We sat down to talk with the senator about that here in our brand new Studio B. We should, before we go on, explain why he is the junior senator. Because Senator Warren Mm -hmm. was elected before him. Right. That's how it's done. It's not a reflection of age. It's not a reflection of age. Or of beauty. That's right. <laughs> <This is> true. <laughs> also, did you touch on his partnership with AOC, the superstar of the freshman class? The Green class? New Deal. You know, we didn't really get around to talking about that, but you got to know that for an older white guy standing for re-election in a climate, don't forget what happened to Mike Capuano. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time around in the midterms, uh, I, I think he relished the opportunity to share the spotlight with uh, with AOC. So you're more than four years into your first term in the Senate after many years in the House. What's the most striking difference between serving in those two bodies? Well, when... Um the Republicans controlled the presidency, the House, and the Senate. Uh, because 60 votes are needed to pass legislation, I was part of the minority in the Senate that was able to block uh, any legislation that was coming out of a right-wing Republican Paul Ryan House. And then an enforced negotiation results in either 
legislation which is truly bipartisan, which happened many times, or no legislation is passed because uh, no compromise is possible. So in that status, okay, we were uh, invaluable. We were able to block much of the most uh, extreme uh, legislation that was coming over from the House that Trump might have signed. In this new era, uh, we have a, um, uh, a situation uh, where, again, the House uh, is in Democratic control, but in order to pass legislation, we'll need bipartisan compromises that are made between uh, senators, and, uh, and I look forward to working with my colleagues towards that goal without any sure and certain knowledge that Donald Trump will sign anything because it runs contrary uh, to his uh, ideological agenda for the 2020 election cycle. Do you have any interaction with the White House? Um, I do. I, I, I actually had lunch with the president and talked to him about the fentanyl crisis. I told him that we really needed to do something much more seriously about this crisis. I told him that we had 2,000 people in Massachusetts that died from it in one year and that it would be 100,000 people for the whole country, two Vietnams a year. Uh, and so I introduced a bill, which the president supported, which um, now has 65 million dollars in it for fentanyl detection devices, uh, which are used. Uh, and you might have seen the big drug bust down in Texas uh, that found the largest fentanyl. Yep. Uh, well, they used one of the devices uh, that I was able to uh, authorize. So that so became law. That became law. And we had a signing ceremony in the Oval Office with the president and with Republican senators as well. So where you can find agreement, where you can work together uh, with the other party, you absolutely have a responsibility to do so. Where, on the other hand, the president is engaging in activity, which is only playing to his most conservative right-wing base, then there you have a responsibility to fight him as passionately as you can. I mean, the fentanyl issue, thankfully, seems to have wide bipartisan support behind it, as you just described. On other issues that are more contentious, it, what if any actual negotiation goes on between the White House and, and Senate Democrats such as yourself? Is there any? Uh, well, I'll give you an example. I am working right now on a privacy bill of rights for children 15 and under online in order to protect them um, against uh, Facebook and other uh, companies that uh, just haven't put in place the protections needed in order to ensure that the most deleterious uh, impact of those technologies uh, are not realized. They just haven't acted. So I'm going to be working uh, with uh, Josh Hawley, the new Republican senator from Missouri, uh, in introducing a bill, uh, which I think we have a very good chance of seeing uh, put on the books this year. Uh, and I'm working with other Republican colleagues on other technology issues right now, uh, which I try hard to tease out from the political maelstrom and to uh, work on uh, in a pragmatic, common sense uh, way to actually produce bills. In fact, when I arrived, John, over in the Senate, uh, they actually did a, a, a study of how many bills each senator can be given credit for. Uh, and there were 100 senators. So I came in number eight with 520 laws on the books. Uh, and by definition, I had worked with a Republican in every single instance, every environmental, every energy, every telecommunications, every healthcare law that I uh, am the author of on the books. I had a Republican partner. That's my goal as a legislator. And I think that's how people want us to work together while fighting, especially this president, uh, wherever he's going off the rails to make sure that he doesn't undermine constitutional protections for our people. When you're working with Republican colleagues from pro-Trump states, mm -hmm. uh, do you find that they're scared of the Trump electorate? It all depends upon the issue. Uh, last year, Cory Gardner, who is a uh, senator, Republican senator from Colorado, he's the lead Dem Democrat on the Asia subcommittee on the Foreign Relations Committee. I'm the lead. Uh, he's the lead Republican. I'm the lead Democrat. So we produced a bill, $8.5 billion bill, 
the Asia Reassur Reassurance Initiative, so that we had more resources that we were putting into uh, other countries in the uh, Asia uh, uh, political area so that China didn't become so dominant. But Colorado's so I more closely, of a purple state, though, right? It, it, well, um, it can go either way. There's yeah, no question that's about what it. I mean, yeah. But uh, on this, on many, many issues, there's no question that the Republican base across the country, especially in red states, is so rapid that it does create an impediment to working together uh, between the parties because the Republican paradox is that they don't believe in government, but they have to run for office in order to make sure that the government doesn't work. And oftentimes, you know, right now in this era, that's what winds up happening. They don't want the government to work to solve any problems, and it paralyzes, in many instances, the Republican congressional ability to cooperate in a bipartisan fashion to solve problems. You know, uh, you you describe all, some of this base, at least, as rabid. Uh, and that didn't just happen overnight. That didn't just automatically happen when Donald Trump arrived, right? It would, That was has been building for some time. I'm wondering if, if when, when Donald Trump is gone, does everything go back to, quote, unquote, normal? Well, you want me to get inside... John, the internal workings of the cerebral mechanisms of Republicans, which is hard for me to do. That's that's you know, uncharted territory for me. Don't but you need I, a medical license for that? I would say that they they sowed the wind and now they're reaping the whirlwind. Okay, so now here's a guy that actually does all the things that Republicans say in their primary campaigns that they're going to do, and it's kind of. A shock to them that there's somebody who is like that and the base actually is responding to him. So ultimately, uh, I think that the moderates in the Republican Party have to fight to uh, restore order. I don't know if that can happen in the short term. Uh, my hope is that it will uh, because this is an aberrational period of time that really makes it difficult for us to be able to work together to solve the problems of the country. Do you expect your colleague Mitt Romney to be part of that solution or part of the problem? I'm hoping that uh, he will be, uh, and um, early indications are that he wants to be uh, in that camp, um, and, uh, and we need more people who are willing to uh, do that because ultimately that's the only way the country can yeah. work. Couple last things, Senator. Uh, you're are you with Elizabeth Warren in the presidential race, or not committing yet? No, I endorsed Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Uh, on her um, on her announcement day in, in up Lawrence. in Lawrence, I was there. Yeah. I spoke. I endorsed her. Because um, not she, every uh, elected official. Moore Healy was here with me a couple of weeks ago. She's holding her her water a little bit. Does that surprise you? Well, for me, I work with Elizabeth uh, every day. So I get to see the impact that she has when she's making the case uh, against income inequality, when she's making the case about uh, kids' inability to repay the loans uh, which they um, uh, had to take when they were young, and now they're adults trying to have families and buy homes, and they're still saddled with them. And, and I can also see uh, how Republicans react to her because she's a fighter. And in this era, that's what we need. We need a fighter. Uh, this is going to be an incredibly tough battle in 2020 to depose um, uh, Donald Trump. And she's, from my perspective— the kind of fighter that we're going to need in order to take him on every single step of the way in 2020. And so um, it's, it's my honor to be able to back her. She's, I see her every day. She's my partner. We try to work hard every day for the state of Massachusetts. Well, just the other day, she got a new competitor in that race, Bernie Sanders, the senator from Vermont. And in an interview the other day, Sanders said, quote, we've got to look at candidates not by the color of their skin, not by their sexual orientation or their gender, and not by their age. We've got to try to move toward a non-discriminatory society which looks at people based on their abilities, end quote. You agree with that? We have an incredible, diverse, 
set of candidates in the Democratic Party who are running for president in 2020. Our candidates look like America, and we're going to have an incredible debate from all of their different perspectives uh, as to what the future of our uh, country should look like. But at the same time, every one of them is 100% American. Every one of them represents the best traditions of our country. And I think the American people are truly going to enjoy watching the Democratic Party in all of its diversity, all of its greatness. Uh, homogeneity is a, is a weakness. Heterogeneity is a strength. And that's what the Democratic Party represents uh, in our country. And I think it's something that uh, the Republicans should be very fearful of because there is a rising tide across this country, of millennials especially, who look like a rainbow uh, in our country. And they're voting now at twice the levels uh, that they did in preceding generations because of the candidates that the Democrats are fielding and all preceding analysis of turnout in that category are now out the window. And as a result, it's anybody's ball game for uh, 2020. I'm putting my money on Elizabeth, and I'm putting my money on the Democratic Party uh, to present that diversity of opinion, diversity of faces uh, to, uh, to change the White House and have a new president sworn in on January 20th, 2021. Well, as someone who has left 60 behind, I happen to think age equals wisdom. But uh, a lot of those millennials you just mentioned don't necessarily feel that way. Uh, you know, we, we just saw Seth Moulton make age an issue in his uh, 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 unsuccessful challenge to Nancy Pelosi on the House side. I mean, you'll turn 73 next July, uh, so you'll be 74 when you're on the ballot in November of 2020. Uh, do you think that's something in the long run you're going to have to deal with, uh, well, when, when you look at when you look at the crowds that Bernie is drawing, and you look out at the faces out there, you see people who are young and are concerned about the future, and hear the words that he is using. When you see the crowds that Elizabeth is drawing, and you look out at the audience, you see young faces who are energized by what they're hearing. It's the issues that have the charisma. It's the issues that uh, drive people. And that's what Elizabeth, that's what Bernie, that's what other Democratic candidates are bringing. And by the way, on the other side, there are young people and old people wearing MAGA hats. <laughs> Donald Trump's the same on his side. You need an intergenerational compact. If we're, going to, if we're going to beat that MAGA compact between young and old on their side, we need a compact on our side as well. Uh, because we're not going to need everyone on the field battling this guy because he's good at rallying his base, and we have to be good at rallying ours as well, and it knows no age barrier. Senator Ed Markey, thank you for joining us on Studio BZ. Thanks for having me on, John. The answer is more technology. More and better. More and better. More and better. better. Me? I'm the damn fool who slays them. Me? I'm the damn fool who plays him There's a dozen songs we haven't trashed But just you wait Who is spoofing man? Lin-Manuel is Hamilton The Huntington Theatre Company is presenting Spamilton, an American parody at the Calderwood Pavilion at the BCA in the south end of Boston. It's running through April 7th. It is an affectionate, funny send-up of the Broadway juggernaut Hamilton. And uh, today we're talking to Fred Barton. And Fred, you are one of the two local guys involved with this show. We know Jared Del Alessandrini uh, was from, grew up in Needham, and you are from Lexington. That's correct. And graduate of Lexington High School? Lexington High School, which I found out in retrospect is one of the finest that I could ever imagine. Yes, it is. A very, very good school. Where did you, did you go on to study music from there? Well, I went to college in a little joint in the Boston area called Harvard. It made me it made me appreciate Lexington High School all the more than the the, uh, the academics and the, every, everything at Lexington was great. Of course, you don't appreciate it when you're inside it, but now I look back and think that was the real deal. When did you get interested in music, Fred? Well, uh, again, I hark back to Lexington because it's an extraordinary music town. 
and my older sisters played, my mother played, and of course I started banging around when I was five. And uh, my uncle told my mother, he's got it. <laughs> and my mother found, literally found, found a teacher out of the Lexington Minuteman, out of the newspaper. And by sheer luck, she was one of the finest teachers you could ever imagine. She literally ran a conservatory-level uh, piano study in her house in Bedford across the town line. And I was with her for many years till I was in high school and she moved. Uh, and then she sent me to her teacher, the head, Edith Stearns, who was the head of the Boston Music, uh, Boston University School of Music Piano Department. So I had the just the finest training I could ever ask for. And then in the meantime, my mother was a longtime theater fan and my parents started taking me to the theater. So from the age of maybe 12, they were t I was going into the Colonial and the Schubert to see the latest tryouts. That was in the day when musicals tried out in Boston. Right. What Do you remember what was the first big Broadway musical you saw? Well, I remember that in the, the first one was actually uh, when I was in the sixth grade, we took a school trip to the Schubert Theater and saw Pearl Bailey and Cab Calloway in Hello, Dolly. Wow. And I now that I know who they are. Yes, that was an incredible I revival had, of Hello, Dolly. What year was that? Do you remember? That was 1970. It was really um, a period in the theater district in Boston where, as you say, since the 40s, right, since Oklahoma, Boston oh, yeah. was the out-of-town tryout town. And, Ella and one of the reasons, because Boston is known to be a, uh, when I, a tough crowd, by wow. which I mean a discerning, mm. educated, demanding theater audience. So they had to get it. If they could get it right in Boston, they were in good shape for New York. When you first saw Hamilton on Broadway, did you, you probably, did you see it at the public first before it? Well, it was the other way around for me because I hadn't seen it and started Hamil oh, Hamilton. Wow. And then Lin-Manuel came in and found out that most of us had not seen it. Because <laughs> nobody could, could not, get a ticket. You could not break into the place. So he it was an incredible gesture on his part. He arranged for tickets for all of us. Wow. And then not just tickets, but the best in the house. And uh, so that's when I saw Hamilton just a few weeks after we started Spamilton, thanks to Lynn Manuel. Before that, I had listened to some of it. It's not, it wasn't really my thing. I, again, like, <laughs> like Hal Prince, I went with a chip on my shoulder. I just thought, I'm not going to like this. And it knocked my socks off. Within 45 seconds, I was in. When you when you went to go see Hamilton, did you go back and rework any of Spamilton for inspiration yeah, from it? What, well, it was helpful, actually. I mean, I had listened to the album a hundred times because when I did Forbidden Broadway and likewise when I returned 30 years later to do Forbid, uh, Spamilton, my whole uh, philosophy on the in the music is it... Parody is at its best when it sounds the closest to the original. Mm. Right. And uh, so when I did Forbidden Broadway, I, I have a naturally orchestral way of arranging and playing the piano and all the rest. So I simulated a, a Broadway orchestra. Hamilton was really hard. I mean, Spamilton, that music doesn't play well on the piano. It's, it's very rhythm based. It's a rhythm section. It's got all different kinds of stuff styles in it it's not just the hip-hop right and i had to wrap my brain around all of it and somehow come up with a way to convey rhythm tracks on the piano it was very bizarre now when when lin-manuel came to see spamilton apparently he was roaring with laughter and he actually came back and gave you all notes and and suggestions for how to make it funnier right yeah i guess there was he just had some thoughts some inside thoughts because it's about him so he would know uh and sent apparently a detailed, Gerard told me he sent a detailed uh, set of notes on what really happened or what might be funny or some uh, anecdotes that Gerard didn't know about. And uh, so Gerard did re continue to rewrite the show in the preview period and uh, just sharpened it up a bit, tuned it up. <laughs> I think the, the sort of affectionate thing, too, about doing a show like Spamilton is that Lin-Manuel Miranda also has this affectionate love for traditional Broadway shows because that's, he grew up listening to them. So uh, even he though went, he's introduced hip-hop and rap to Broadway, there are so many references throughout Hamilton to old Broadway shows, South Pacific and so many others. It, it makes sense that he would love being Well, he grew up like just this. like Gerard and me. He grew up a Broadway baby. And uh, like one of his favorite shows was Camelot. 
And we actually, Gerard actually refers to Camelot a number of times for that reason. And uh, Gerard, I mean, uh, Lin-Manuel went to college with my niece. So at Wesleyan, and they did theater, and they did shows together. So when I met him, I was able to say, oh, by the way, I'm, <laughs> I'm your college friend's uncle, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which made me feel a uh, hundred right. years old. <laughs> but he, uh, he grew up going to see Forbidden Broadway. So that when he found himself portrayed in Forbidden Broadway, it was a big thrill. And then when he found himself the subject of an entire new show roughly derived from Forbidden Broadway, he was quite pleased. Well, because it's interesting. He always says that his family, you know, he'd listen to those albums in New York because they couldn't afford to go to a Broadway show. And so he sort of came from that similar background of loving it, wanting to be a part of it, but couldn't even go see the shows himself as a kid right. um, living in boston i you know i it was a once once or twice a year thing to go in to see a show and i i had no idea really that broadway was still happening i thought it was the records in my mother's collection and i didn't even realize it was a going concern until i got into my teens and thought oh they're still doing this stuff <laughs> what's your favorite song from spamilton from spamilton mm-hmm Oh, well, I might think, of course, I'm a, I'm a real retro, nostalgic type of person. So I'm very fond of this song when, uh, you know, we have guest stars showing up, like someone comes in as if Liza Minnelli were coming to see Hamilton. We see, we see Liza in this show, right? Yeah, she comes in and she's, she's all these stars like Barbara Streisand, these old time stars come in. And the reason they do is because they're sort of jealous of Hamilton. Like <laughs> it's doing now it's doing better than they are. And they don't like that. So uh, in our sort of conceit. So Liza comes in and longs for the old days. She wants her type of music back and she sings a song. It's an old Harold Arlen Yip Harburg song. They wrote the, uh, the wizard of Oz and over the rainbow and, Earlier, they had written a song called Down With Love. And Gerard resets the song to the lyric Down With Rap. Down With Rap, an Eminem's greatest hits, whoever he is. The licks, the tricks, and all of the misrhymed bits. Down with songs that instigate and impugn. Down with rap. And drown it out with a tune. Put back please. Oh, Ani Tajiri. Ani She pl- does Liza Minnelli, Barbara Streisand, Bernadette Peters, and all three Skyler sisters with puppets, yeah. which is a very She's, she's funny really moment. a miracle. She's a miracle. What a fine. What determines if this thing goes to Broadway? Do you want it to? Do you like it where it is? It wouldn't go to Broadway because, for a number of reasons. It really is what it is. It's an off-Broadway show, mm-hmm. and that's why it's playing see, uh, theaters that have, I think, the Calderwood is 300 seats. It's a nice space. Uh, and there, there's a whole network of theaters around the country where Forbidden Broadway played back in the day. And it's basically playing that circuit because if it landed on an enormous stage, I think it would be very, not as good an experience as the intimacy of an off-Broadway theater. Well, it really says a lot that the creator himself would uh, give his approval for Spamilton to move forward and tour. And it also says a lot about his and your uh, love for old Broadway and new Broadway. And it's a lot of fun. And Fred Barton, it was just great to talk to you. Absolutely great to talk to you, too. Glad to talk with my hometown once again. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. She is the freshman congresswoman from Massachusetts' 3rd Congressional District. Yes, joining us now is Representative Lori Trahan. Thanks for coming back. Oh, thank you for having me. We spoke to you last during the campaign, so congratulations. Thank you. uh, Thanks for coming back here. We want to dive right into what is happening in Washington. The president has declared a national emergency at the southern border in order to get the funding for his proposed border wall. Now, the Democrats, the House will introduce a resolution Friday to terminate the president's declaration. This, of course, was a huge campaign issue for him. And do you plan on voting for the resolution? I am going to vote on the resolution. I mean, it's uh, it's clear that the president hasn't made the case uh, to lawmakers on... um, 
on the border wall. Uh, didn't make the case to the Mexican government to pay for the wall. And, uh, and this calling a national emergency is basically circumventing Congress and it's diverting funds from the military and from disaster relief victims uh, to fulfill a campaign promise. So I'm against that precedent. Um, the president, by his own admission, said, I don't need to do this. Uh, and so I think we need to preserve um, states of emergency for real disasters, terrorist attacks, hurricanes, weather events, um, uh, disasters like that. You have endorsed Senator Elizabeth Warren yes. for president. Why? Well, uh, one, I think that she has been a diehard advocate for working in middle-class families well before she ever uh, got to the U.S. Senate. And, uh, and I think she wakes up every day thinking about that income inequality gap and how we're going to solve uh, that problem. Uh, I, uh, I'm so excited to see so many women uh, in, in the race. Uh, but, you know, I was so proud to stand there in Lawrence, in historic Lawrence, on uh, the site of the Bread and, Lawrence, uh, Bread and Roses strike uh, so many years ago uh, to fight for working in middle-class families. And I think she is really going to offer an agenda that level um, levels the playing field, uh, which is badly needed in this country. You know, over the last four decades, we have tilted the balance uh, towards corporations and special interests. And I feel that squeeze all the time when I talk to families in my district. And we need a bold agenda mm -hmm. to address that. You mentioned so many women in the race. Yes. And I do want to ask you about, uh, it must have been so exciting to attend your first State of the Union address. Yes. And of course, so many women mm -hmm. elected alongside you there in the chamber. What was it like? It was great. Uh, you know, I didn't, I can't get, I can't take any credit for organizing wearing uh, suffragette white uh, that evening, but it was pretty cool um, to sit amongst so many women where a hundred years ago in the very chamber we were sitting in, we got our right to vote. Uh, and there we were, um, a, a powerful block of women who ran on wanting to have more voices at the table as we, as we, uh, as we talk about health care issues, uh, environment, education. So it was, uh, it was great. Uh, what was equally um, great that night was my guest. Um, yeah, I'm going to ask you okay. about that. Veronica and Ivan yeah. Soto. Yes. Ivan Soto is the Lawrence police officer who famously left his own burning home yes. during the Merrimack Valley gas yeah. explosions to go help other people who were being affected by yeah. the disaster. Is enough being done to help the Merrimack Valley recover from those explosions? No, we still need help. Uh, in fact, I consider it a priority uh, of mine um, to work with those small businesses in Lawrence and Andover and North Andover as well uh, to be made whole. Uh, not enough. I mean, I, I sat down with small businesses, I mean, bodegas, small corner markets, where the calculation on their claims is just unfair. The mass delegation has been united in, uh, in holding the, uh, the company responsible. We have to hold them accountable. Um, you know, there's road repairs that have to be done that we don't want these communities to be footing the bill for. We also don't want to make sure that there is a, a rate hike uh, and that, you know, the communities that were just affected, these rate payers, are paying for the aftermath of this disaster. So we're, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a job that's not finished, um, but, uh, but we're, going to, we're going to be watching it. Yeah, we should mention that throughout the year, we are following the Sotos. We've mm. gone back several times yes, to I saw. see the yeah. reconstruction of their home yes. and the kind of challenges that they've been up against. Oh. And we plan to continue to do that throughout the year. When you talk to people other than just going to support a business in Lawrence, when you speak to the individual families, what do yeah. they tell you? that they need the most? Is it mostly the emotional turmoil they've been through? It's sure. You know, I, you, I saw your, uh, your interview with the Sotos. Yeah. And there is... Our David Wade. Uh, <laughs> yes. And there's real... Um, you know, there's real trauma associated. I mean, there's kids that, uh, you know, they get anxious when they hear the sirens again. I mean, I don't think you can fully appreciate, you know, what that night was like. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do think that even though the community is so resilient and people are back in their homes and they're rebuilding, there's still a lot of loss um, that people are, are feeling. Uh, and so, you know, we go, I've spent probably more time in Lawrence than I have in any other community in the district since being sworn in. 
and it's to do what we can. Um, and, and there are a lot of great organizations there that are, um, you know, investing uh, in those programs that will help uh, families rebuild. But, you know, we, we look at our constituent services in the office as a way to help on a case-by-case -case basis sure. because certainly there are families and there are small businesses that are still suffering and we're trying to help where we can. Another question about party priorities. Now with your new House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, has once again uh, assumed that leadership position. And she has said that Democrats do want to go after President Trump's tax returns. Uh, Representative Richard Neal is chairman of House Ways and Means, and he has the power to uh, go after the president's tax returns. Hasn't done it yet. And so I guess the question is why and do you want him to pursue them? So I think we'd all like to see, uh, you know, what, um, uh, I don't think we'd all like to see the president's tax returns, right. right? I mean, I think everyone has their own hypothesis in terms of whether there's a conflict of interest at play here and why we're acting the way we are in terms of our foreign policy. Aside from that, uh, right now what the leadership has to do um, is terrain some, is uh, traverse some pretty tricky terrain. Mm -hmm. We have to get things done. I mean, the, the, the country wants Congress to work together, and we, they want us to accomplish things like cleaning up the government, which is why we, we uh, introduced H.R. 1. Mm -hmm. um, they want, you know, uh, prescription drug prices to come down. They want us to get to work on infrastructure. All the while, you are balancing that with holding this administration accountable. And that is, um, that is non-trivial, right? Yeah, the president has said balance. he's not going to work yeah. with you if you investigate him. He said that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there are, as we've seen just with this conference report that we passed last week, Democrats and Republicans can work together. Mm -hmm. uh, this is interesting. What I'm hearing you say, because you describe yourself as a pragmatic Progressive. And it's interesting to hear you say that things need to get done. Yeah. Do you think that there is a danger in these next two years for the Democrats to pursue the tax returns, uh, the Russia investigation, those issues too much? In, you know, a well, presidential I think, I think one, cycle you, instead of working on things that people want done. You bet. I mean, that's a fair question. There is a lot happening in the background, even during the, the shutdown and a very divisive first six weeks in Congress. There was a lot being done in committees. You know, I'm on the Education and Labor Committee, and we were holding hearings on protecting ACA and protecting, you know, access to health care for people with pre-existing conditions. You know, I, I co-sponsored the Paycheck Fairness Act and um, uh, and certainly uh, the paid leave legislation. And there's a lot being done. I think what we have to do is, is work on that, right? We have to work in earnest on that, um, you know, and wait for the Mueller report. I mean, we have been so patient uh, in terms of not... Uh, you know, s issuing subpoenas and indictments until we see the body of that evidence. And, uh, and I think you, want, you don't want that to be a partisan process. You want that to be self-evident. And I mm -hmm. think that that is the balance that we are, are trying to strike right now, is getting things done for the American people because they are so tired of gridlock and so many of us ran on breaking that gridlock. But also, we've got obligations under Article 1 to be a co-equal branch of government and to hold this administration accountable when they go off the rails. Last question. To, back to local uh, issues. Before this interview, you were actually in Methuen yes. for uh, a meeting on the opioid crisis. Yeah. You met with members of law enforcement and health care. And Lawrence, which is in your district, has mm -hmm. had a really big issue with opioid overdoses and addiction. Yeah. What aren't we doing right now that we need to be doing? Uh, I think the federal government needs to step up in a very powerful way and take on this public health care crisis. Um, it's, there have been um, some good things that have happened in Massachusetts um, that we can build upon. But what I learned today is that, one, there is still a stigma associated with addiction, and it prevents people from seeking care. It prevents people from making this uh, Ill illness discussable and getting the treatment that they need. So we, we have to change that. Our medical, our healthcare delivery system is actually not designed uh, to eradicate addiction, and I think that needs to that needs to change. I mean, we don't look at the recovery as one that's very long, you know, long term, uh, and we don't fund it that way. And so, I think we have to meet people where they're at. Um, you know, when they're calling for help or when they're asking for help, you know, we have to give them the help that they need uh, because those opportunities don't always present themselves on 
until they're too late. And so, uh, you know, I just joined the uh, freshman bipartisan working group on addiction. And it's because uh, this freshman class is you know, pretty uh, in touch with this crisis as it has played out in each of the districts that we represent. And I'm hoping that we can be a catalyst for uh, progress on this crisis. Well, Representative Lori Trahan, thanks for coming back. Thanks Thank for you. speaking with us. We hope you'll come back again. I will. Let's get to a little war that has erupted on Twitter. Comedian, local comedian Adam Sachs, a few days ago, decided that he was going to launch a Kickstarter campaign to raise $4,000 because he wants to change the very last scene in The Departed, the final shot after Matt Damon has been shot in the face by Mark Wahlberg. Uh, it's panning out. You see Boston City, uh, not Boston City Hall, you see the State State House, Golden Dome. It's panning out. And a little rat runs across a railing, stops right in front of the dome, and then continues. Of course, the metaphor slapping you in the face, the movie is all about trying to find the rat, and here's a rat in front of uh, the state house. And he was so upset by this final shot and how over the top the metaphor was that he started this Kickstarter to edit the final scene of The Departed. And to permanently digitally remove the rat. Right. He had right. a whole strategy of how he was going to do this. Then, it, as, as it turned out, someone went ahead and did it for free. Because if you have the editing software, it's pretty easy at this this day and age just to remove the rat from the movie. Uh, now, Warner Brothers has issued a cease and desist. Mm-hmm. They told him to stop this. He's had to take down his Kickstarter. By the way, he raised more than $4,000 and he did it, I think, in 24 hours. But now he isn't able to do it because Warner Brothers has said, hey, you got to stop. What happens to that money? It goes back. I believe it's supposed to go back donate. to the people who donate. Let's okay. hope so. <laughs> In theory. Adam, if you're listening, <laughs> we'll do be the watching. right thing, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> We're going to check up. Well, listen, I, again, all due respect to Adam, who I don't know, and I'm sure is a fine fellow, um, apparently has time on his hands. <laughs> and a lot of it. And I, I was also reminded of uh, the old Saturday Night Live skit with Will Ferrell, where they're in there, some crappy band is in the recording studio, and a, they've got a big name producer uh, being Walken. played by Christopher Walken. Yep, and of he course. says, Fellas, that was okay, but I need more cowbell. Yeah. And they're like, What are you talking about? And Will Ferrell's like, If, if, so-and-so says he wants more cowbell, then that's what we're going to give it to him. Yeah. If Martin Scorsese wants to have a rat on the windowsill, <laughs> it would seem to me that yeah. that's the end of well, the discussion. Well, here's, you know. here's the it started the debate on Twitter about whether or not the metaphor, whether or not Scorsese intended it to be subtle. A lot of people think, no, The Departed oh, no. is a comedy. It, all of it is hitting yeah. you in the face with metaphors. I think it's Sean Burns of uh, mm-hmm. WBUR pointed out in a piece about this whole episode yeah. that there's a scene earlier in the movie when Matt Damon's character is telling uh, Vera Farmiga's character. Did I say her name correctly? Farmigia. Farmigia. That you know, he has erectile dysfunction. He's explaining this whole thing to her. She's eating a banana. During the scene. So mm-hmm. the whole movie is hitting you over the head. I don't get the ridiculous. connection. Our Can you get to that to me I'll explain it to you after. On, the, that'll okay. be the after hours we podcast. We will have okay? a little follow up. <laughs> Our esteemed producer, Jonathan Case, who is also a learned filmmaker, yes. agrees. Martin Scorsese is a hilarious human being mm-hmm. with a fantastic sense of humor. He doesn't do big studio films, right? So the whole thing's a joke. The whole Jack Nicholson and the bucket hat. I mean, the whole thing from beginning to end. And the rat is just the icing on the cake. Am I right, Jonathan? Is this sort of, by the end, he's saying, if you fools really thought that I wanted this movie with this plot, here's the rat to well, just now, drive it home. I, I, as our resident uh, get-off-my-lawn contrarian, <laughs> I want to challenge this whole premise here. Yeah. First of all, that The Departed is a comedy. Yeah. I will admit it is extremely broad mm-hmm. and... Yes, now that you mention it, it never really dawned on me, but the, the banana... Yes, if was nothing out of Jack Nicholson's jokes. accent is hilarious. It, yeah, how yeah, bad yeah, it, it is. It is, but... Um, Every, you know, mobster movie trope is in it. But it's also dark. Yes. And could it be that the rat on the windowsill was Scorsese saying, um, okay, uh, was it Mark Wahlberg? 
just took out one rat, mm. but there are many more where he came oh, from, sure. and they're running wild in the city. As oh. John Keller knows all too well. <laughs> oh, I think Up that's absolutely what the rat is And I think that's, a, right. not, that's not a ha-ha <laughs> funny point oh, to me. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, sure. but I think, in other words, the comedy is is in that the metaphor is over the top, right? The comedy right. is that it's you you're, you're kind face. of making fun of the viewer in a way. It's a like, little bit. It's like when Alfred Hitchcock. It's not making fun of the view. Well, I, I, right. I, I can't uh, here, shut up. What do you think, Jonathan? No, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Okay. Wait. It's, so it's, if you watch Wolf of Wall Street, which I would argue yes. is one of the funniest movies made in the yeah. past. Like, Another Scorsese. Yes. Yeah. And then watch The Departed. It's, it's got the same humor in it. Like the whole movie uh, of The Departed is so over the top with like all these over the top macho characters. It's about... It's basically about toxic masculinity, and mm. it's a comedy. It's a commentary about these tough guys and how they they just can't relate as human beings. And one of them has ED, as it turns out. Uh, we, we, <laughs> yeah, well, no, if it's a movie about masculinity, as, but uh, but um, one of the things seems kind of fixated on that. It does. It's, it's, yeah. it's really it's really touched <laughs> yeah. a nerve with me, but we can explore Somehow. that later. One of the yeah. things that occurred to me as I was reading this, I've been editing movies. My whole life. Paula, I've told oh, you about this. Liam it, has a complete philosophy yeah. about doing this for his own sake. Okay, Cold Mountain. If anyone's seen it, the end of the movie, Jude Law spends his entire, uh, the entire Civil War trying to get back to Nicole Kidman's character. He mm. finally does. They meet in the woods, and then the next day he dies. So Liam can't what do I this. do is, after they meet up and they make love in the tent and that whole thing happens, I then turn the movie off. Boom. It, that's how it ends. It's over She's for him. pregnant with his child. Happy ending. Boom. That's good okay. Good to go there. Now we move on uh, to Love Actually. Love Actually. Um, do, oh, right. The, yes, yes. There is a whole scene in Love Actually when uh, Laura Linney's character brings the young man she's been attracted to for a long, long time back to their apartment. And then the night ends up being ruined because her brother, who has a disability, she ends up having to leave and go see him. I just turn it off before she gets the phone call from the brother. She has this lovely night with this man she's been in love with forever. Fast forward to as the next scene. As far as he's concerned, I, that as, never as, as far as I'm concerned. That never happened. Moulin Rouge. She gets the consumption at the end of the movie. There's a beautiful love story. Ewan McGregor, Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman comes up again. It's a theme with me. But Moulin Rouge. They spend all movie getting together and trying to fight the system to be together, the poor man and the rich woman. And... Finally, they do, and then she dies of consumption. You turn it off before they get to the consumption. Uh, Princess As you in the can Frog. See, Liam yeah. belongs to the did, Choose to Believe yeah. Club. Did you did you bail on the Wizard of Oz before the tornado hit? Uh, I bailed on the Wizard of Oz when the Flying, Flying Monkeys. Monkeys came out because that is just the most disturbing movie of all time. Uh, uh, Princess and the Frog. When Ray, the lightning bug, uh, dies at the end of the movie, which, by the way, screw you, Disney, for doing that to me because Ray is my favorite character in the movie, watching it with my daughter. In every Disney movie, you expect the character to die, but usually they die at the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. and it sets up the growth of <laughs> right, the other characters. Right. The they loss kill of the Ray, the lightning bug, the lovable lightning bug, mm. at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. You go through the whole thing, the princess be- goes back to being a princess, and then Ray, the lightning bug, dies. You turn the movie off before Ray, the lightning bug, dies. <laughs> this, is how I, this is how I live my life. I edit, I edit these okay. things out right Jonathan, there. this brings us to a question. Is this a millennial thing? <laughs> I think so. As no, Jonathan points no. out. No, no. Jonathan points out here, uh, he's got a little talking point. Fanboys need to grow up. <laughs> so I do think it's very interesting yeah. that Adam Sachs here, back to our guy who wants to edit The Departed, yeah. they mentioned in this View article, he went back and edited all of the feminist scenes out of the Last Jedi. No, oh, he didn't. No, no, was, no, he didn't. Sex. no, oh. no. It was no, no. that was someone else. This was another person. A weird I Star take it back. Wars. One this of those, was not. There's Adam a whole Sachs like work. weird. But there was another young man who edited and defeminized yeah. the Last Jedi. Okay, so what is it with these people? It's bad enough that Liam just doesn't want to see it. Yeah. Well, I don't what have any issue What motivates someone to want to actually go back and edit the movie themselves? You know, this again. is kind of inspiring. I think next time I read the Bible, I'm going to skip right over Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> well, Genesis is, is, is a good is part. Where all the really good I would stuff skip is. over Leviticus if Leviticus, I were you. That yeah. one is Now nah, you've stepped in it. That's for the death and destruction. <laughs> um, I just think movies should entertain you and inspire you and leave you feeling happy mm. and somewhat uh, 
I, I just don't like the idea that I'm going to leave a movie feeling depressed. You don't like a good cry? I don't like a good... Do you, Paula John? knows this. Paula knows yeah. I don't well, like seeing I don't know that cry. I like it, but, but it's yeah. part of life. I'm one of those yeah. dark Irish people that actually enjoys a good cry. Yeah, yeah. but, I, but yeah. I, I like a cry over something real that, you know, I, I don't like it, a movie to impose that situation on me. Right. So what about The Godfather? <sighs> well, that one doesn't make me feel sad. That one's... You know, when Fredo thrilling. took two in the hat out in the Come boat, on, that didn't. Fredo, <laughs> you broke my heart. Yeah, yeah. When Sonny got shot up with on the you're not causeway. emotionally attached to any of those characters. Right, that's they're why mobsters. You, don't care. you know, that's that's the life. So thing, you're putting you know, your your but, but, but poor Nicole Kidman judgment on uh, them. Poor poor Jude Law in Cold mm-hmm. Mountain. Mm-hmm. You like pretty people getting together. And nobody dies. Yes, that is that's a good movie. There you go. That's a good movie. I, I'm just I'm going to cut this out, but I want to point something out. <laughs> this is fantastic. And that is that some people make movies to show you what's wrong with the world, so that you will feel yeah. bad about it and you will feel motivated yeah. to change it. I know, but I think yes. we already solved consumption. So now. <laughs> all, all the media, the media. All, all the media, the media. This was quite revealing. Yeah, really. Um, this is the most was, telling episode we've ever done. This was Yeah. And future yeah. psychiatrists. I don't think I can ever look at you it. the same way again, Lee. <laughs> at least we're not going to go to the movies with him. Well, no, well, that no goes without yeah. saying. Yeah. You're, you're not invited to movie night in my house. <laughs> well, like I, no, if I am, I, I get the remote. No, no. Okay, no, no a little fast forward situation. My house, yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, he likes his throwback Disney movies. That's pretty. Although well, those, well, some of those are pretty fine. No, no, oh, anyway, God, when Bambi's yes, mother gets Bambi's killed, mother, are you kidding me? Jano, Dumbo, still kind of filled up about that. that. <laughs> again, the tragedy in those happens at the beginning that so sets up the growth of the characters throughout I the movie. See. Mufasa dying in the Lion King, see, very the tragic. Always but. dead. That always bothers me. Well, yeah. but there in Lion King, it's Mufasa. Your issue that without the mother, then there is a tragedy, right? There's going to be a problem because there's no mother there yeah. to well, solve that, Yeah, that's every problems. Greek tragedy ever, right? Um, so, give us a rating and a review. Tell us what you think of Liam's psyche. <laughs> Subscribe and share. The Twitter handle is at uh, Studio BZ Pod, and I'm at Paula Evan WBZ. And I'm uh, at Keller at Large, and I promise a retweet to the best tweet about Liam's confession here <laughs> Ooh, today. And I that shall I double see. retweet. Yeah. By the way, huge. And I have 11,000 followers. <laughs> yeah, huge. And uh, half huge, of them are spam, but that's a okay. huge audience last week for our uh, brutalism debate yes. and, and my rant against uh, bare feet. You mean okay. my so, victory in the brutalism debate? Was it a victory? Uh, well, we'll have to let the, oh, clear, the listeners right. decide. What's your Twitter Only the Soviet judge. Only the Soviet judge when he gets. I am at Liam WBZ. Share your thoughts. Mm-hmm. about uh, bare feet and uh, movie endings. And Even if you're a Russian bot, we'd Even, like to hear your thoughts. Well, yeah. not really. <laughs> <laughs> and in any case, come next week, we'll, we'll be, be seeing, seeing you from our new studio. Awesome. So I want to know if you saw a Picasso that you didn't like one part of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll just walk. Step it up going pale. That's very disturbing.